so I'm John, and I'm going to be finishing our series on creation care, as Dave has mentioned this morning. And uh, Caleb started us a couple of weeks ago, didn't he, with um, two weeks ago. He opened our eyes, I've opened my eyes anyway, to just how damaging uh, an impact on our natural world our activities are already having. And uh, I have to say also at the same time, I was delighted to see that he had finally arrived at the gold standard of preaching and gave us three memorable points, all beginning with the same letter. Wasn't it? See, no matter how much you try to resist, we all get there eventually. So just to recap, uh, these are the three. Have we, got a, have we got a PowerPoint this morning? Yeah? Have we? Yes? There we go. So these were Caleb's three points that we should assess. This is how we can respond to the climate emergency. Assess our household impact. Adapt to reduce that impact. And, uh, you know, small changes all add up. Or as we say in Scotland, money's a mickle, max a muckle. And uh, we've been getting some really helpful tips, haven't we, over these last two weeks. So far we've had 20. We've got another 10 coming this morning. But then finally, advocate. Advocate on behalf of the created world and those who are impacted most by the climate change that is taking place. And of course, one of the really important ways that we can do that is by praying. This morning, uh, I'd like to take the liberty of adding a fourth point to that. And that is number four, that we should anticipate God's future for creation. Now, this word anticipate can be used in two ways. And I think that both of them are relevant in shaping how we live in the months and years ahead. Firstly, and to anticipate means that we are expecting something to happen. Uh, usually we're looking forward to it, and, and usually we're going to be preparing for it. So, for example, part of the pleasure of a holiday is booking, booking a holiday is anticipating it, looking forward ahead. So the way I do that is I look at maps and I, I kind of plan interesting walks and cycle trips and things like that. Pam, on the other hand, she anticipates that holiday by learning useful phrases in the language of the place that we are going to. She spends a lot of time trying to get me to engage in that as well, which I usually don't do until like about 10 minutes before we arrive there. I remember the first time that we traveled through Germany a few years ago, uh, <laughs> we walked into a restaurant one evening. Nobody else was in there. The place was deserted. There were just loads of empty tables. However, one of the phrases that Pam had learned before we went to Germany was, do you have a table free? <laughs> so as the waiter greeted us, I knew exactly what to anticipate. There's a, but, you know, God's future for creation is something that we should be looking forward to and preparing for. But there's also a second way in which we can anticipate it, because anticipate also means to give a hint of what is coming. So, for example, the miracles of Jesus anticipate God's future for creation. And today, every healing, every time someone's eyes are opened to who Jesus is and all that he's done for us, 
It's, it's God's future breaking in. And the signs are there if we can see them. And we are a part of it. Already, God's future is breaking in. And the thing that we need to understand is that what, whatever we are anticipating will, be, will have a big impact on our lives. There's a, a, a picture here. Next slide, please. Yeah, thank you. This is, I just saw this and it just broke my heart, you know? What we anticipate impacts our lives. You will die of old age. We will die of climate change. And it's in this run-up to the climate change conference, the projections for the future that we're hearing every day on the news and programs and television, they are alarming. There's no question about it. But, and it's taken a toll on mental health among particularly among children and young people. It's, it's making young adults think twice about whether they're going to have children or not. Here in the UK, the birth rate is now down to about half of what it was 50 years ago. It's well below the level that's needed to maintain the population. So we live in a time when people are not optimistic about the future of life on this planet. But this morning, I want to just try and look through that and look a bit further ahead to anticipate what is sometimes called Teotwaki. Have you ever heard of Teotwaki? Anyone know what that is? That's the, it means the end of the world as we know it. That's my title for this morning. <laughs> now, I don't see anything in the Bible that would lead me to question the evidence concerning climate change. But what I do see is that however bad things get, the story of this planet and our life here does not end in tears. Now, I'm not saying that climate change shouldn't concern us. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take action to try and head off its worst effects. What I'm saying is that we need to take hold of the hope that is held out in the Bible. So I want to look this morning at what light the Bible has to throw on the current state of creation, on what lies ahead of us, and on how it all ends. So first of all, what light does the Bible throw on our current situation? Well, as Caleb explained a couple of weeks ago, when the relationship between God and the human race was ruptured by our rebellion and deciding to function independently of God, all creation was affected as a result of that. And that's the background to what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 18 to 23. Here it is. Hopefully, yeah. Now we're getting in there. Hey, we're cooking with gas now, aren't we? Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
right to today. That's the case. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, there's a lot in that. I just want to draw out two points this morning. Firstly, this world is not what it was intended to be. The whole universe is deteriorating and running down. Everything wears out and dies. You know, we talk a lot about saving the planet. And, and you know, I, I get that. I understand the sentiment behind that. And, and you know what? If the nations of the world are able to pull together and we manage to hold back global warming, that will be a great achievement. But, spoiler alert, it won't save the planet. Because climate change is part of a bigger problem, and that problem is us. The problem is human sin. And the planet won't be saved until that is dealt with. As long as we're broken, the planet will be broken. But the good news is, God has that in hand. I read, uh, I think it was just a couple of days ago, the United Nations said that this climate conference is an opportunity, um, an opportunity for humanity to save itself. I think that's slightly over-promising, personally, because it takes a cross and not a conference for that to happen. But the good news is, God has it in hand. Second point is, if you're in Christ, then His Spirit is in you, and already you are part of what the Bible calls God's new creation. The not-so-good news is that for now, your body isn't part of that. It's still part of this present creation, subject to the same deterioration and wearing out process as the rest of creation. Hands up if you've already clocked that. But God's Spirit in us is, if you like, a foretaste that anticipates the day when our bodies, too, will be redeemed and transformed into the kind of body that Jesus has right now. And, and we will then enter into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. On that day, we will be seen for what we truly are, and God will bring, bring creation with us into a whole new, redeemed, and restored reality. More about that shortly. When will this happen? Anybody? When Jesus returns. So, let's just, what can we expect between now and when Jesus returns? That's the second thing I want to look at this morning. The place people often look for guidance about that is the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, a wonderful book. Uh, for example, Revelation chapter 16, verse 1, says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, that's the temple in heaven, saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. It goes on to describe what happens as these bowls are poured out. It includes marine life being killed off, rivers, 
dried up or polluted, the sun scorching people with intense heat, nations being plunged into darkness. It's a series of events which culminates in the overthrow of evil and the undisputed reign of King Jesus. It's not hard to understand why people might read that and see it as describing the effects of catastrophic global warming. However, we do need to be cautious in attempting to identify specific events, specific world events with what's described in the book of Revelation. So I remember 50 years ago, people would read that passage and see it as describing a nuclear holocaust. So uh, we can interpret things in a whole number of different ways. The thing to remember with Revelation is that it uses language and it uses images that are highly symbolic. It may turn out that the events described are the result of catastrophic global warming, but that's speculation. What is clear is that these things that happen are an opportunity for people to repent, to have a change of heart, not just towards creation, but towards our Creator. Tragically, that's not how people respond. Revelation 16 verse 9 says, They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, but refused to repent and glorify Him. Now maybe I've missed it, but in all the debate about how we respond to the climate emergency, I haven't heard anything about our need to turn to God. Instead, what we see being played out is exactly what we read in Romans 1, that although we only need to look at creation, to look around us, to see what God is like, we refuse to acknowledge Him. And so our foolish hearts are hardened. And the book of Revelation, in a sense, lays out the consequences of that process. There's a long history of people looking for clues as to what to expect in the run-up to Jesus' return. There's even a thing I came across called the Rapture Index. I don't know if you've come across that. What that does is it aims to measure the type of activities that we should expect to see uh, leading up to the return of Jesus. So along with severe events in the natural world, like floods and wildfires, it includes things like what the EU's up to, what's happening in the Middle East, financial turmoil, so on and so forth. And the occurrence of all these events is used to create a scale. And the higher we are on that scale, the closer we are to the return of Jesus. Anything over 160, fasten your seatbelts. Anybody care to guess what the index stands at at the present time? Come on, let's have a... What? Any advance in 130? 160? Any advance in 160? Yeah, that's close. It stands at 188 as of yesterday. So, among end times watchers, expectations are running high. There's only one problem with this. Jesus said, what did he say? The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. All we can say for sure is that we are living in the time between Jesus' first coming and his return. But 
his return is closer than it was yesterday. Which brings us to the final question. What will happen when Jesus returns? 2 Peter chapter 3. He has a lot to say about it. Verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, it will take people by surprise. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now this is sometimes taken to mean that in the end the world will be incinerated. That the earth and all that's in it will just be like burned up, destroyed by fire. And of course, inevitably, some people would see global warming as fitting right in with this scenario. It even leads people to ask, well, what's the point in trying to stop or even slow down climate change? Because whatever we do, the earth's going to be burned up and destroyed in the end anyway. And you know what? We're going to be in heaven then, so it isn't going to matter. Only, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. The context here is that Peter is retelling the story of the flood. And in the passage right before this verse, he, he says that the earth was destroyed by water at that time. But of course, we know that the earth wasn't destroyed in the sense of being wiped out or ceasing to exist. What happened, if you like, was just a global reset. That's what I think Peter's talking about here. This term, laid bare, means that everything will be seen for what it is. He goes on in verse 12, That day will bring about the destructions of the heaven by fire, and the elements will melt with the heat. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that word elements, I can't help but picture the periodic table that used to be pinned up on the wall in the science lab at school. Do you remember that? A list of about over 100 the things that this world, like where you've got hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, gosh, it's amazing I can still remember that after all these years, and so on it goes. And it's like everything in the world is made up of some combination of these elements. So if they melt, if they melt that's it. There's nothing left. It's gone. However, the Greek word translated elements here can also refer to heavenly bodies or to the stars. And here Peter is quoting directly from Isaiah 34 verse 4, and that's what it means there. This is a metaphor about the sky being peeled back, as it were, before the God who sees everything. So again, Peter is picturing everything being seen for what it is. Everything that comes from evil and greed and injustice is exposed and removed. It's a fire that judges and reveals the true nature of things. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, our God is a consuming fire. So like the flood, I think what we're looking at is a massive reset. Only this time, it goes even further. Verse 13 but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. In other words, it's a reset, not just of earth, but of all creation. 
so that a brand new heaven and earth can emerge. One where sin is eradicated and everything is put right. Finally, once and for all, forever. Now listen, it's not wrong, I don't think, to talk about going to heaven when you die, but heaven is not your final home. The story ends not with God's people going to heaven, but with heaven coming to earth. And the last two chapters of Revelation describe what that will be like. If you're not familiar with this, you should definitely take time to read it regularly. Let me, here's the first, just the, the first, the opening verses of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. In Scripture, the sea, if you go back right to the beginning of Genesis, the creation, the sea is seen as the, as the source of chaos. It's, 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 it's a thing that's threatening to humanity. Earlier in Revelation, we see the beasts coming out of the sea. So the sea is seen as a, as a place of chaos, and there's no longer, remember, symbolic language we're talking about. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Who's the bride? Not Jesus. <laughs> it's us, the church. The husband, Jesus is the husband, right? Of course you know that. Um, sorry, I've lost my place here. Uh, where were we? Oh yeah. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. That says in mankind, including women. And he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The story doesn't end in tears. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The new heaven and the new earth are joined together as the dwelling place of God with a new redeemed humanity. What God began in Jesus, he will bring to its glorious completion. What I see being described here is, if you like, the, the utter transformation of heaven and earth by means of abolishing forever all the tragic effects of sin. The new earth will be the home that we always longed for. As you read on, you'll see that there is no temple there. It isn't needed because the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. The holy city that we, that's pictured coming down from heaven is later described as a massive cube, 12,000 stadia in every direction. That's about 1,500 miles. It's very, very big. But the main thing here, the number is symbolic. It represents fullness or completion. 
The main thing to notice is that it is a cube. Where else in Scripture do we see a cube? The ho- Thank you, Bridget. The Holy of Holies, that the inner sanctuary of the temple, the place where God dwells was a perfect cube. That's the only other place, as far as I'm aware, in Scripture where we find a perfect cube. What John is telling us here is that this is, this is the return. This is what God always intended. This is, this is what was pictured. This is what the Garden of Eden was meant to be. The, the, the city is the reality, this heavenly city that was anticipated by the, the Holy of Holies in the temple, the, the place where the presence of God dwelled. And the point is that the earth itself is now God's temple, just as it was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But, of course, until sin entered the world. Only now we see it's no longer a garden, but a garden city, because the garden wasn't supposed to remain a garden. It was to be developed and made beautiful as men and women took creation, took the project that God began forward. So it's filled with music and streets and dwellings. And yet it retains the features that we see in the beginning in the garden. There's the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. There is the river of the water of life as prophesied by Ezekiel flowing out from the throne of God sparkling through the streets and flowing out into the world beyond. Best of all, we will see his face with eyes that are no longer clouded by sin. As part of God's new humanity, we are restored to our calling to exercise wise and delighted stewardship over the earth. What did you think we were going to be doing? Just, you know, sometimes it's portrayed that we're going to be there like singing endless choruses before the throne of God. Well, we will worship, I'm sure, but actually there's, there's stuff to do there. Phew, what a relief. <laughs> Our joy will be complete. That's the thing. Oh, and by the way, did I mention that we'll have new bodies? Isn't that great? Jesus was raised from the death, not just as a one-off, but as the first fruits. And at his return, we will be raised in the same way. We haven't got time to get into that this morning, but read Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, transformed. The end of the world as we know it, is not, in fact, the end, but is a glorious new beginning. Somebody say amen, for goodness sake. (laughs) Now, human sin has meant that the long road to new creation is marked by blood, sweat, and tears, not least on the part of God himself in the person of Jesus. But I really believe with all my heart that by the mercy and grace of God, this creation that we have messed up so badly will not be done away with, but will be utterly transformed and renewed from top 
to bottom. So to wrap this up, let's go back to that verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Well, are we? Are we looking forward to that? Is that our hope? Is that the future that we are anticipating? If it is, then we'll be doing two things. Firstly, we will be preparing ourselves for it. Secondly, we will be a sign of what's coming. So Peter goes on to say in verse 14 this, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now listen, if you are in Christ, then you are already spotless and blameless in God's sight. And because of that, you do have peace with God. But God is also working in you by his spirit to bring your life more and more into conformity with what he has already declared you to be. And that means that more and more you are beginning to live now in a way that anticipates what you will be in God's new creation. That certainly includes exercising wise stewardship over his creation in the ways that we've been looking at over the last couple of Sundays. But here's the thing. Doing that not out of fear, but doing it in hope. Doing it in hope as part of a loving relationship with our Creator. No, no longer living just to please ourselves, but living to please Him. And that in turn, as we are doing that, it means that our lives increasingly are a hint to the world of what is coming. As we experience the transforming grace of God, we are a signpost to the coming kingdom of God that already is breaking in. Hallelujah. I just finished a book just last week about a Ukrainian family. I'm just going to finish with this so you can get ready. <laughs> it was a book about a a Ukrainian family that were fleeing across Europe in the closing stages of World War II, along with hundreds of thousands of other people. They were desperately trying to, to stay ahead of the advancing Soviet army, while also struggling at the same time to avoid falling foul of the retreating Nazi forces. They were like caught between two evil regimes, Stalin and Hitler. Both of them trying to force people to conform to their warped vision of humanity. And this family, I just, they survived prison camps, forced labor, separation, starvation. They took huge risks and kept pressing forward while others just gave up or died. And what kept this family pressing on wasn't that they were just driven by fear. They were experiencing fear understandably, but that wasn't what drove them. What kept them going was that they carried in their hearts the hope of a better world, of a better future. 
And eventually, just amazingly, they made it to West Germany and from there to the United States. For them, it meant the life of freedom and opportunity and happiness that they had dreamed of and that kept them going. That's what I'm talking about. Paul said that he was pressing on in order to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus had taken hold of him. Jesus has taken hold of us in order that we can live forever in his presence, free from sin and from its horrible effects. Meanwhile, there is an evil regime that is trying to conform us to its warped vision of humanity. I'm not talking about the Tory party, by the way. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the prince of the power of the air. I'm talking about the powers and principalities. But what will help us to resist this continual pressure that comes on us and to keep pressing forward is if we carry in our hearts the hope that is held out in the Bible that I've tried to communicate to you today. This hope of a new heaven and a new earth where at last we will be what God always intended us to be. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Can we stand and let's, let's just worship God together.